Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast where a couple pastor scholars get together and uh, break open the Word of God and study together, uh, offering some insights and observations and sermon starter ideas uh, that we hope will be and equipping and edifying and enjoying, uh, enjoyable. I don't know how to say that right. Uh, uh, listen for you all, whether you're a preacher or teacher going through the lectionary or just someone who wants to learn on your own. Either way, we, we welcome you to listening into this podcast. I am your host, John Drury. I teach systematic theology and spiritual formation for Wesley Seminary at Indiana Wesleyan University. And today's guest is Luigi Peñaranda. Luigi is, this is his second time to be on the pod and appreciate him coming back. Um, I love interpreting scripture with Luigi. I do so often. We always have these fun geek out conversations. Many times we have procrastinated our uh, daily uh, work and especially our grading in order to uh, uh, have conversations about Luke and Matthew or Isaiah, you know, so he's so much fun to interpret scripture with. I appreciate him. Uh, so very much, both his exegetical skill and his sort of cultural perspective as uh, one who grew up outside the U.S. So I just constantly need that kind of press to think outside my North American box, although he's been in the States for over two decades. So uh, he's, uh, I appreciate him so, so, so very much. He teaches both uh, leadership and New Testament exegesis here uh, for Wesley Seminary at Indiana Wesleyan University and teaches both English courses and Spanish courses because we have a fully uh, full uh, Spanish master of divinity here at Wesley Seminary. So anyway, he's a great friend and a, and a, and a delightful guest. I was so glad to have him on back in Easter. And I was really jazzed to get him back on to do a text from Luke because Luke is uh, without a doubt his, uh, his sort of sweet spot in terms of gospel interpretation and, and even just uh, biblical interpretation in general. He's a big, uh, big Luke fan, Luke geek. So I really appreciate having him on today to discuss our text from Luke, which is uh, Luke chapter 12, verses 49 through 56. And so this is for the 10th week uh, after uh, Sunday after Pentecost. Uh, So this is going to drop a week before that Sunday, which in 2019 is on August uh, 18th. Yeah, so uh, having said all that, I just remind you, as I always do, to rate and review the show on iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher or whatever app that you use, and feel free to get the word out, uh, not only subscribing for yourself, but uh, let your friends know on social media and all that business. Uh, we appreciate all your listening and your support and your promotion of the show. It's a, it's a, a great joy to um, do this work uh, week in, week out. We hope that you uh, enjoy it in general, and I'll just say, as I always do, uh, enjoy the show. Let's do this, Leroy Jenkins. <laughs> <laughs> so we're looking at Luke chapter 12, uh, verses 49 through 56. And this is for the uh, 10th Sunday after Pentecost in year C, according to the Revised Common Lectionary, which we just use as our jumping off point. And I'm here with Luigi Penuranda. And would you be open to reading the text? Then I'll say a word of prayer. Or do you want to flip it? Do you want me to read and you pray? It's your call. I don't mind reading. Go for Perfect. it. Luke 12, verse 49. I have come to cast fire upon the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you, no, but rather division. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And he was also saying to the crowd, 
when you see a cloud rising in the West, immediately you say, a shower is coming, and so it turns out. And when you see a south wind blowing, you say, it will be a hot day, and it turns out that way. You hypocrites. You know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and the sky. But why do you not analyze this present time? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks for this day which you have made, for this hour to which we have been sent, and for this moment in which you are present. And we ask, O Father, for the grace to be attuned to your presence, that as your spirit moves this hour in, with, and through Luigi and I and all those who are listening in, separated by time and space, but each in their own moment where your spirit is, may we be kindled by the fire of love that is your Holy Spirit so that we may encounter afresh your son, Jesus Christ, who spoke these words and whose spirit guided the one who wrote them down and has guided your church in handing these words on through the centuries. Father, we ask that you would be glorified in and through us and even against us as you see fit through our conversation today. We entrust ourselves and this hour to you in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Wow. So uh, what jumps out at you? Where, where, what draws you? What draws your attention? Well, this text is really interesting. The moment you begin to read it, you have this shocking sense of what's going on. It's almost like <laughs> when you're talking to someone your relatives or your spouse or your kids and you hear in their tone of voice, something is wrong. Like what's wrong? Yeah. The moment I began to read, that's the first thing that comes to mind. What's wrong, Jesus? (laughs) He says, I've come to cast fire upon the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. So clearly we have this sense of volatility in Jesus and In a sense, I like it because we get so accustomed to imagining his voice to be this kind, gentle, uh, gentle spirit kind of voice. Uh, But the moment you read this text, it just creates chaos. Uh, He's upset. Something is bothering him. He wants to bring fire upon the earth and uh, he wishes it was already kindled. Uh, what's wrong with Jesus? What is, what is going on with him? So that's the first thing that I, th- that I see in the text that kind of gets my attention and it forces me to ask the question, what's going on in the context of this passage? Yeah, I love that you mentioned that because uh, this is a, you'll have to forgive me uh, or indulge me uh, a little memory lane, but my first formal training in exegesis was from Dr. Steve Lennox. I don't know if you got to interact with Steve much. You guys overlapped a little. Right? Yes. Uh-huh. And he's now president of Kingswood. And I took a class with him, uh, sophomore year of college. And he had these 10 steps of exegesis. It was really good. And I'm tempted to list them off right now, uh, which is very indulgent. <laughs> uh, but I will not. I might later. We'll see. Because it you know might be helpful to our readers, but uh, and they do our listeners, and and they do affect even my study now. But one of them was the one that I never understood, like how to do. You know, mm-hmm. it was one of the ten, and it was called atmosphere, atmosphere, the atmosphere of the text. Mm-hmm. Right? This is distinct from genre, which he called form, uh, distinct from the purpose of the text, right? The unit of thought. See, now I'm listening to word study text analysis. The first step was just called observation, right? Which is really the root of most of them. And only, sure. only three of the 10, they had a little asterisk next to them, required outside resources. He's like seven out of 10 of these you can do just with you and an English text, right? Um, he was a great teacher. I, I mean, it shaped me so much, as you can tell. <laughs> Reciting lectures from when I was 19. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's um, But that one, I never got it. Like, I just didn't know what to do with it. 
And some of it is just a certain kind of intellectual and gender formation that had to do with mine just not paying attention to my emotions. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, that's some of it. So, and it never, it's like, this is the first, I, I actually in the last maybe five, 10 years have started to learn to kind of notice that a little bit, uh-huh. often not first. Although it's very clear, like you, like it was the first thing you said. Uh-huh. And I know that that was true for me. I was attuned to this because, you know, because when I have guests on, like when Aaron and I record, Aaron just shows up and I tell him what the text is. <laughs> you know, because that's, that's, right. that's the way he wants it. And that's the way we did it from the beginning. As you know, like with guests, I will tell them the text ahead of time sometimes, just so they can read it, be ready. Mm-hmm. I don't want people to over prep, but just to be. And sometimes I give people choices. And I've been, and I, you know, we're working ahead there here for summer texts. And man, they, uh, nobody was picking this text because I kept giving people <laughs> choices because we're working far enough ahead. So I'm like, and no one was selecting this text. You know what I mean? I even had someone I just recorded yesterday, I won't say who, who like, they said, oh, any of those are fine. And I said, this one is because no one was wanting to do it. And <laughs> they said, great. well, maybe not that one. <laughs> so to have you choose it, because you chose uh-huh. it, of, of a few options. Next you, right. And surely, so I was picking up on some kind of, and, and in a way we're kind of naming this, this atmosphere of something is wrong, something is amiss. And you even talked about the tone of voice. And it's amazing because the tone of voice is not in the text. And yet it also, it is in the text. You can write in such a way, both with choice of words as well as with, but also syntax and the rhythms. I mean, this is just, Jesus is picking a fight or even saying a fight's coming and it's about me. I mean, this is, this is wild. Interesting. And I think that's what (laughs) caught my attention. And, uh, you know, when I when I saw the choices, it really sounded so different than the Jesus that I yeah. like to hear. Yeah. And I think that just uh, caught my attention and, and created this sense of like, this is the text that I want to explore. And, and perhaps a little existentially leaning on this idea that, uh, that often we make Jesus to be in the image of who we are. And we make him to sound very much like, like we imagine him is going to sound. So you're completely right. The text doesn't give us a, t- a tone of voice. Yet uh, you do grasp this, this sense in the rhetoric of urgency and of uh, distress in what he's saying. And, uh, and, and the need to, to bring the audience to this, this moment of attention, pay attention to what's going on. Yeah. You will say kind of later with this image of, of the weather, you're able to discern the weather, but are not able to discern this time. And I love that. I love it. it, it I called it the tone of voice, but obviously it's just the, the pressing urgency that comes with the, the, the rhetoric of this particular text. But the first thing that I, I wanted to, to bring to our attention is, is like you don't even know who he's talking to at mm. first. Just, just looking at it, it kind of forces you to look back and say like, what's going on? Who is he talking to? What is this fire? And uh, generally growing up in church, uh, every time that the Bible talked about fire, I would kind of follow the idea that the church is on fire and we have desire ah, for God and, passion, and right. <laughs> maybe Jesus is bringing fire to the movement. But clearly the fire he's talking about here is, uh, is not the nice kind of fire that moves people <laughs> towards uh, feelings. <laughs> so what is this fire and how is it related to baptism is what I, the, the, some of the initial questions that I would ask. What, what is fire? What is this fire that Jesus is bringing upon the earth? And how is it related with baptism, which in this text seems to be related to what he is about to suffer right. on his way to Jerusalem all the way to the crucifixion? Yeah, well, let's dig into that a little bit. I, I have one thought about fire, and I'd love to hear yours as well. One thing about actually fire and baptism appearing close to one another mm-hmm, correct. back in Luke 3 and I'm looking that up right now where John the Baptist says in Luke 3:16 I baptize you with water but he who is mightier than I is coming the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie 
he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable mm-hmm. fire. Mm-hmm. I don't know, that's the passage that first came to mind was this notion that John the Baptist saying, Jesus has come in and I'm, I'm preparing you for him, but he's the one who's going to make. And notice that's a division just like here where it's father against mother. That's right. Each other. Um, he, he's got the winnowing fork, right? He's got the pitchfork, right? Ready to separate and uh, pick up the wheat, shift it a little bit. And the chaff falls out and blows away and then we burn it up. Mm-hmm. So, you know, his own, his own, he will keep. Right. And so this is, that's an act of saving an act of vindication, but that brings with it, therefore the, the, uh, the, the justice meted out. So uh, that immediately comes to mind. There's baptism that's different. That's Jesus own baptism, but it seems to be clear. Well, I'll let you respond to that and add what you want to add first. And and then I'll say what I was going to say. I think that's a great connection, and it helps us understand uh, what Luke is trying to say. Uh, the passage that you read in the in the comparison that that Luke makes, you can clearly see that fire. He will baptize you with spirit and fire, but fire meaning more judgment than he will warm up your feelings to right. fire. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, and that cross connection to the John the Baptist is super clear. It's no, it's less, you know, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So here in a sense, uh, I think he's really uh, speaking to his audience and it is kind of funny how in looking at the context, I was, I was just skimming through and first he was talking to Peter uh, at some point he's talking to the crowd and uh, it's almost like he's kind of, speaking of this urgency of this message that they need to get quickly, that they need to discern uh, because as he goes through what he calls his home baptism, something new that is pressing is going to happen. And if they don't realize it and they don't make things right soon, it may be too late. So in a sense, Jesus is up against his own passion going to Jerusalem to his own crucifixion. I wonder if he's using this image of baptism here in a sense in which he's, he's coming to fulfill, to do something that will, will trigger then the difficult times, judgment times. And if you miss it, it may be too late. Now, I'm trying to be cautious not to transfer this idea with what, as evangelicals, we often preach that, you know, Jesus is kind of talking about hell. And if you don't repent and convert right now, then you're going to miss it and never go to heaven. I don't think Luke is telling us that in this passage. I think he's actually telling this audience, you are in front of the son of man, the fulfillment of God's promises. He's about to do something and, uh, and, and you may miss it if you don't discern what's going on. No, I think that's really good. And I think it's really, you, you, you've been mentioning the question of the audience a couple times. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to look at that for a second. The last reference. So there's a reference in the middle of this passage. He also said to the crowds. Mm-hmm. And then you mentioned Peter earlier in 41. And then when you trace it back up there, the last reference to audiences in 22, he said to his disciples, Prior to that, he was speaking to the crowds right. <laughs> for, the, for the parable of the rich fool. So it's like he's speaking to the crowds, and then he's like kind of turning to his disciples. And he seems to still be speaking to his disciples when we get to our section. Text, yes. Uh, uh, I came to cast fire on the earth. And then it's, so it's interesting that he's kind of like, you could, you could take it as him kind of speaking to his disciples, who he thinks of as his own. Mm-hmm. But we're going to be, this is a trial to come. You know, you're going to have to make a decision. You know, this is like the, this is the, whoever doesn't hate his father and mother and brother, right? Which yes. again, if read in the abstract, seems like a, just the worst instruction you can imagine. But I, I take it that what he means by that has to do with the fact that your family is not going, 
you can't count on your family being on the same side of this. This is, this actually helps that passage make more sense, right? Right. Who is your primary loyalty to? So that if they're on the wrong side of the equation, you don't choose your familial love over your seek ye first, the kingdom. And which means, yeah, got to hate my father, uh, father, mother, brother, because again, they might take up the other side. And as you mentioned, in terms of this being not just, sort of end times, but even in the now, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, this sounds a lot like the kinds of things that played out in, in the, in the run up uh, to the destruction of the temple in eighty seventy. So th- that at least could be one of the things on his mind. Yes. Um, yeah. It, it does seem in, in now that you mention all the different uh, audiences or, or how at least the text shows us that there's some nuances of this message that are directed to different audiences uh, yes, there is that sense in which he's inviting the disciples to discern something that even the crowds there are missing. Everybody is kind of missing that time. And he's calling the, the disciples earlier on to even understand that life does not consist in, in, in the possessions that they have, that they need mm-hmm. to actually sell their possessions, give to charity. I mean, he's just kind of saying this, this is a crucial moment where a shift of loyalties needs to happen, which I think is very interesting in, in the first century as a Jew, your, your loyalty mm-hmm. uh, would be to, to your family. Uh, your honor depends on, on how you relate to your family and even to not just your own household, but the household of Israel. So I wonder right. if in that defi- division, he's calling the disciples to say, this is a shifting moment where your allegiance to the household ideas uh, uh, will be put to the test because of what Jesus is about to do. What, what do you think about that? No, it sounds spot on to me, especially because then 54 through 58 or 56, again, if we kind of put ourselves in the place of the disciples, then we might misunderstand this passage and try to take it at least, I mean, I think there is an invitation implicit in this passage, but at the explicit level, it's not an invitation to be discerning. <laughs> it's a judgment. You're a hypocrite. You don't know how to see. <laughs> right? Right. Uh, and that's why it's important that it's to the crowds. It's like he's turning to the crowds and saying, you guys know how to interpret the skies. How can you not interpret the times? <laughs> right. Right. And it's, it's a statement of frustration. If anything, I do believe that, you know, in, in a fuller sense, the spirit of the text would include, therefore, an invitation. Hey, if you interpret the times, you know who to follow. It's me. Right. <laughs> but that's not the explicit yes, you're right. uh, letter. The letter is just saying you're a hypocrite. If you can interpret the skies, then you should be able to interpret the times. And you're fa- you failed. And, and the previous words almost prep you for that. They're almost him turning to the disciples and saying, watch this. <laughs> here, here comes a division. Uh, <laughs> who's, who's, uh, who's ready? Because in a way, he wants to winnow, to use the winnowing fork from earlier. I mean, He's happy to winnow out the crowds. He's not really interested in the, the fame of the crowds. Yes. not the loyalty of his disciples, but he wants to call them to follow him. And he's fine actually making it harder rather than easier so that he has those who are truly um, loyal to him. Yes. It, uh, that's really good. And I, and I think going back to the initial thought of hearing the voice of Jesus differently uh, mm. kind of resounds with me in that, Again, perhaps it's just me, but I think all of us kind of create this this sounding of the voice of Jesus in which, you know, he's just so patient, so loving, so kind. He's just waiting whenever you're ready, come to Jesus. And here you just kind of hear uh, a whole different tone saying, hey, this if you're not ready <laughs> uh, to the disciples and, and to the crowd, he's just saying, you you hypocrites, you can't you can analyze or understand the times uh, as, as they're going by right now. So, yeah, to me, I, I, you know what I love, John, is I love how the scripture has a way of challenging the image of Jesus mm. that we sometimes make. And uh, to me, this passage does that. I wanted to ask you about Jesus' own baptism. So obviously it kind of triggers images of 
him being baptized by John. And, and we saw that connection ah, earlier. Yeah. yeah, Jesus seems to use this idea of his own baptism. I, it, what comes to mind is that passage in the Synoptic Gospels when, when uh, uh, two of his disciples are asking for preferential treatment. And he asked, like, are you able to, to drink from my cup and be baptized with the same baptism that I'm being baptized? And, and it just kind of seems to uh, point in a different direction that what he's talking about is, I don't know, do you think is his suffering? Is he talking about going to the cross? Is, is that image of baptism part of Jesus' thinking? Or what do you think? I think that is an awesome question. Let's take a quick break. And I want to focus in on that when we get back from the break. Does that sound good? And we're back. You good? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. The fake break that we always take. Um, let's let's do some. In order to get into that interpretive puzzle of the meaning of his baptism, mm-hmm. let's do a little synoptic work together, real quick, if that's okay. Okay. Um, so, just briefly, this passage: I have come to cast fire upon the earth, and would that it were already kindled. And I have a baptism to be baptized with and how, <laughs> how am I constrained until it is accomplished that those two verses appear in that form only in Luke. Okay. And then the remaining, the remainder of the passage, though considerably in a different editorial form appears in Matthew. Okay. So you get, do you not think that I've come to give peace, but the sword, he says that in Matthew. Mm-hmm. And then in Matthew skips the, he goes through peace, but sword rather than peace, but division, interestingly. Hmm. Um, so the famous peace, not peace, but a sword, that's from Matthew's version. Luke's is uh, not peace, but division. And then he does the this kind of complicated one house, five against three, three against five. Matthew cuts that, which explains why that's not as... Matthew tends to get gets more pressed in the church, in my experience. Whereas he, in Matthew, you just get you know a man against his father, a daughter against her mother you know, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law and a man's foes will be as in his own household. Whereas Luke's is a little more complex. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whether Luke has complicated a common source here or whether Matthew has kind of clarified a common source is a, is an open question. Right. This would be a good example where you could make a case that Luke is preserving because his is a little harder to understand just the five against, you know, (laughs) what's going on? Like three against two, two against three, you know? And so, but it doesn't really matter which one's older. Then you have this parallel that you brought up then in Mark, right? So it's Mark 10, verse 38. So I'm turning there real quick right now. I was looking at this earlier, and this is going to be, and and was shocked, actually, Hmm. because that passage appears in Mark, famous passage that you refer to as a synoptic, which I think of it as a one that appears in all right? Uh-huh. That story, the beginning of it, the part where James and John, or again, Matthew cleans it up, their mother, <laughs> you know, yeah, I don't know right, if that's, that's right. I don't know, it kind of yeah. sounds like he's sticking up for him, but anyway, that whole dialogue leading up to the cup that I drink and the baptism with which I am baptized, Yes, that does not appear in Luke, which was a real shocker to me. And then the that's dialogue awesome. after, right, where the 10, where, where they get in a debate, and Jesus gives them a little instruction about the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. That famous, uh-huh. yes, that comes right after in Matthew and Mark. But Luke has moved that to the Lord's Supper scene, hmm. right? Because Luke's Lord's Supper is much longer, not as long as John's, but much longer than Matthew and Mark's. Okay. Yeah. And, he, and there's more instruction. And he, he's brought some instruction into the, the Lord's Supper scene. And then it's just pretty much straight. But then that little, but that little bit, the James and John story and the line about baptism, not in Luke. Again, this was, these were all just like observations doing comparison. That's great. To draw from them, but I think they should be, those introduce some hints as well as some guardrails for the guesswork that we might engage in. That's right. That's right. Now, I appreciate you pointing that out. That's what Uh, I (laughs) (laughs) 
That's all I got, but, man. All, all I got here is my big old synopsis. That's all, that's all I got. <laughs> what it means, I don't know. No, that's, a, that's so great to actually highlight those, those important nuances about the text. Nonetheless, I think the, the question remains, what does baptism yeah. mean here, right? And, yeah. and in some aspects, while it was not a synoptic text, and thanks for bringing that up, I wonder if there's overlap in meaning, even though it's not, it's not so. a textual overlap. I think there is. Yeah, that wasn't actually meant to kind of shoot down that it's connected. It's actually to say, for me, it sounds like you've got a saying that's probably really old. Hmm. Some kind of saying, because both of the sayings, I'll, I'll say the Matthew version real quick in English. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. Whereas in Luke, it is, I have a baptism to be baptized with, mm-hmm. right? And it's, it's, it's the exact terminology, right? Baptisma, uh, baptisni, and how constrained I am until it is perfected. So I think a strong case could be made is that, that Jesus used the language of baptism to speak metaphorically, I guess, for lack of a better word, or symbolically, I don't know which term you prefer, to signify something he's undergoing. Um, And of course, we have the passion predictions, right? And so he senses that he has to undergo something, and that by him going undergoing it, that's what brings the big judgment, the big division, which corresponds with what would happen. Like like the Johannine way of putting this is that, that in his cross, the devil is cast out, right? Or earlier in Luke, you have this reference to, I saw Satan fall from heaven, right? So so you have other images for describing this kind of, that in many ways, the day of judgment just is Christ's death, right? That you see it, that the moon, you know, the the sun is blocked out, you know, the the curtain is rent in half. So I'm 100% agreement with your hunch that this baptism that he undergoes is has something to do with his passion, which doesn't actually, which, which just even makes even more strange the notion that his passion then is somehow connected with judgment, especially because we tend to associate that. Oh, the, ba- his passion is him dying for us. So this is him being so patient. <laughs> well, it sounds like this is also the place of his, his bringing this uh, eschatological, Judgment, And then it, to me, that makes it even more fascinating than to think that there may have been these sayings of Jesus that then his followers in sort of gathering Jesus sayings located in different narrative contexts. You know what I mean? Yes. Uh, it's actually an independent confirmation that this has a history way prior to these texts. Right. Because if Luke was just copying Mark here, he would have the same story. Yes. Why is he drop that story and tells, has this same imagery in a whole different spot? probably because he had some reason to believe, well, he's got these other sources. He's like, well, no, this is a, a great saying of Jesus. And right. I want you guys to hear, you know, not just the invitation to, to pick up your cross and suffer with Jesus, although not denying that, but bringing right. alongside of that, this, the baptism he undergoes is the, as it were, the initiation of the kingdom, right? The kingdom's breaking in and it's going to generate conflict. And this weighs on him. He's not excited about it. I, I wouldn't take it that way, right? Um, would that it were already king, kin, kindled, you know? How constrained am I until it is accomplished, right? He, so I 100%, sorry, that was a long answer, but I, uh, <laughs> five minute, yes, I agree with you. Uh, <laughs> but I wanted to give some reasons, though, because to yes. think it through that, that Luke's playing with it um, in a different direction that highlights a difference. Uh, a different aspect because Matthew in keeping with Matthew and Mark both focused are focusing a little bit more on kind of internal conflict within the church, right? Don't fight over who's the greatest, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And the notion of baptism kind of fits into that story. So it's like, if you want to be great, you need to suffer with me. Don't, don't try to Lord over. Don't try to be the best in the church. And Luke's focus is not as much on that internal it's kind of saying, like you said, in the Israel, he's talking about the judgment that uh, that's coming on Israel and whose side are you going to be on? Are you with me mm-hmm. um, or are you with those who reject me? Right? Yes. 
Yeah, that's excellent, John. Thanks for agreeing with me. <laughs> I think uh, I think another another area that would be interesting to talk about is when Jesus says, "Do you suppose that I came to grant peace?" Mm-hmm. And maybe you know, and clearly he says, uh, "No, rather division." And and here's one that is very very interesting. Like, well, what does he mean by that? What is he trying to accomplish? And in any ways, what what were the people thinking that he was going to do? What were the disciples thinking that Jesus was about to do uh, in in relationship with peace? And and as you would know, peace is really important for Luke. Uh, at, at least as a part of a saying that is a common saying when, when people come to Jesus, he sends them away yeah. with peace, go in yeah. peace, go in peace. Uh, but here he is about to uh, sow division. I wonder if that idea of, of peace here may even have some political overtones Yeah, in that... Uh, if he is really this Messiah that we're kind of sort of trying to understand and beginning to to perceive, well, hopefully he will actually finally bring peace to Israel. And uh, and in a sense, I wonder if he's also saying uh, your allegiances, your understanding is is misguided. I did not come to bring that peace. Right. Uh, I've come to bring division and he's in a sense calling allegiance to himself uh and and not necessarily to their their messianic image of of someone that would restore all things the way they imagined it to be so it is interesting that he he talks about he he did not come to bring peace any thoughts on that one yeah it's so Yeah, I mean, I just glanced over and the Beatitudes in Luke, which are shorter, don't have blessed are the peacemakers in it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not saying Luke doesn't believe in peace, but I'm just saying, interesting, right? Yes. Um, I mean, I think the the grammar is kind of helpful here. He, He doesn't say, do you think that I like peace? Do you think that I'm in favor of true peace? No, it's very, you know, do you think that I have, yeah, but this phrasing, do you think that peace I have come to give on the earth, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, or possibly uh, in the Aramaic behind this, and again, the possibility of an Aramaic source is not implausible given that this this appears only in Luke and Matthew um, and not in Mark. So some kind of saying source that may have had a lot of Aramaisms in it is the term. This could be on the land or for the land. Do you imagine I've come to bring peace for this land? Right. Implying the nation, mm-hmm. right? Uh, the borders, because yes. it's not, it's not like, I, I don't think that Jesus, that, that, that the messianic um, excitement around Jesus would have thought that they're going to just make their life easy. I think yeah. they would have thought you are going to remove the Romans, right? Right, which is going to be violent, but then it'll be awesome after, right? <laughs> right? Again, like James and John, so it actually does connect to that James and John passage in Matthew and Mark, right? Can we sit in your right and your left hand in your glory? And right. what they think of as his glory is when we get to Jerusalem and kick out the Romans, and That's you right. are the new king, this earthly king. Yes. So this phrase, peace on earth. Now, I don't want to get dualistic and say, no, he brings peace in heaven or something. No, no, no. But that's why I want to say the land, like that, mm-hmm. that actually that this land is going to be this kind of, you know, uh, self-determined national ethnic state that we're going to finally accomplish that. Right. So I think you're right to, again, this is a long way of me saying I agree, but uh, <laughs> my own way right? to say that he, I think, is sort of identifying a kind of messianic confusion and saying, no, no, it, at the very least, he's saying it's going to get worse before it gets better. He's at least saying that, probably more. He's probably saying yes. uh, at, that these divisions may be permanent, in fact. And actually, the gospel and the, 
and the, the good news of the kingdom that's being birthed through me, not John, Jesus, right? <laughs> through me is, in other words, through his baptism, through his death, that that and the gospel going out is going to be this fundamental dividing point. You're going to be in communion with the outcast. You're going to be in communion with Gentiles who are going to become your true family, mm-hmm. even when those who have rejected me are not, right? So there's, there's this, this, this fundamental divide is coming forward. So I think it has fun. Yeah, I think it has deep, and it's not, it's not what would normally is a common way of speaking. And I know you wouldn't speak this way. And you're one of the people who's helped me learn how to not speak this way. <laughs> it's not that he's, oh, I'm not a political messiah. I'm a spiritual messiah. It's like, no, no, no. It's, he's a political messiah. It's a <laughs> politics, right? Right. It's a politics yes. that transcends the borders of a nation state. It's the politics that, that refuses the false peace of both Roman empire and the false peace of sort of a local national. So it's like, he's, he's, a, he's kind of an anti imperialist, of course, uh-huh. yeah. but if that's all they saw, he's like, yeah, but I'm also an anti-nationalist. Right. Right. <laughs> so right, he's right. not saying, you know, it's like, no, actually the house of Israel is going to undergo division. Yes. So I'm that's 100% a- with you that this is a whole new politics. That's neither, that's neither, uh, uh, imperial or or nationalistic yeah uh i and obviously i'm picking those words because they speak to our time (laughs) (laughs) they are a bit anachronistic but accurate (laughs) (laughs) that's what's fun of the interpreting phase you know the middle part of the podcast is always kind of this subtle mix of exegesis yeah thinking of our own time because that's not a that's not a fixed division you 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 draw on your own experiences sure absolutely there's no no such thing as a nation state in the first century but that's a modern (laughs) concept but uh i think what validates uh textually i was just looking uh looking at the text that surround our specific text and on the front end is this parable Yep. Uh, of Jesus talking about the master and the servants yep. and leaving the servants in, ch- in charge and, and awaiting for the master to return and, yeah. and having to be trustworthy to that call. And then on the uh, back end of our passage, talking Which to the Which kind of servant do you want to be? Do you want to be one who's ready or not? Right. So yes. that's a decision, right? Yes. And, and the idea of master-servant is really interesting when you look at it through the lens of their national conflict. Because mm. um, he's kind of calling himself the master in the midst of this domination state in, in which they find themselves, and then uh, you have that that that, that passage on uh, why do you not even on your own initiative judge what is right for where you're going with your opponent to appear before the magistrate on your way there make an effort to settle with him so that he may not drag you before the judge and the judge turn mm. you over to the officer and the officer throw you into prison. Uh, I don't know. I think we would have to do more homework, but, but the language of relationships yeah. with judges and magistrates and, and all of that also gave us a picture of telling the crowds, um, uh, listen, get ready. <laughs> yeah. You know, some, some political, or, or some some shaking of the public and political arena is going to happen uh, because of this baptism of Jesus, and and we you know we have the historical evidence that helps us confirm and affirm that that uh, that that also was taking place at the same time. So I think we're on pretty solid ground there, reading this text also through those lenses of of his political vocation as Messiah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. No, it's, it's so good, man. I'm so glad you wanted to work on this one. Let's take a, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, let's write a sermon. Let's do it. How we're going to do it. (laughs) (laughs) And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, uh, Luigi Peñaranda, and we are looking at Luke chapter 12, verses 49 through 56. Quite a doozy of uh, um, uh, sort of an intense uh, word of, I do not bring peace, but division, and I have a baptism and fire to come. And you hypocrites for not being able to interpret 
the time. So, okay, you got a text like this. We've had our conversation. Again, there's more, probably more exegesis to do, but nevertheless, where would you, where, where do we want to run with this? Let's write a little sermon or, you know, give, give, or at least give some ideas and tips to our, to our listeners who might be preaching or teaching on this. Uh, where, where would you want to go on this? How could we kind of focus it in for a, for a teaching? Yeah, um, that's a great question. I think I would go back to probably the first statement that I made about tone of voice. Yeah, me too. <laughs> uh, because there, there, there are two ways in which I would approach a sermon from a text like this. The, the first one is to assume the, the role of the author of Luke. I'm just telling you <laughs> yeah. the story. And, and, and I think it would be a, a way of showing a, a Jesus that often doesn't get to show up at church. Yeah. But there's two ways of doing that, I think. One is with the voice of, let me just show you what Jesus says. But there's another side of preaching, I think, that, uh, that uh, sometimes in the modern times we are, we are afraid of. And, and it is actually to preach with the voice that yeah. Jesus uses with the with the message and the authority that he is trying yeah. to convey, which is uh, calling the people to to uh, alertness and awareness that uh, uh, that we are the the ones called to be the servants awaiting carefully for the master to fulfill uh, to appear to reveal himself in it, in it, in his fullness. And so I, I wonder if, uh, I don't know which approach I would take, but w- w- one would be me showing them a side of Jesus that doesn't show up to church sometimes. Uh, or the other one would be uh, a call, a prophetic call to the church to say, are we abiding by allegiance to Jesus in such a way that, sure, it actually kind of creates some turmoil around us because in the atmosphere in which we are, Everything is competing for that allegiance to this Messiah. But if we give him allegiance alone, there is going to be turmoil uh, and there's going to be division. Um, So those would be my initial instincts to approach the sermon. Well, that raises a fun, um, because sometimes, you know, in the, uh, in the, in the pod, we, we get into, uh, we get into specifics. Hey, here's a sermon idea, right? Theme uh-huh. points. And then other times we just have ideas. Uh, try this, try that, try that. Uh, mm-hmm. And then sometimes we sometimes have these kind of more homiletical conversations, like how to approach a text right. in a sermon. And we don't have to camp on this. If we don't want to, but I think you've raised a really important issue that has at least two layers and probably more, the two that come to mind. The first is what you've named and that's actually specific to the Gospels in particular, but it would have application other places. Actually, there's an important parallel to Acts that I'll get to in a moment. But Mm -hmm. in the Gospels, you can adopt a sort of – it's actually being self-aware is what I hear you inviting our listeners to do and me as a fellow preacher to – actually really explore and discern like what's the persona I'm adopting, mm-hmm. you know, in my, in the text itself. And it, is it the perspective of the author? Is it mm-hmm. the perspective of a, a character in the story? Right. And if it's a perspective of a character in the story, which character? Right. And in here you have disciples, crowds, and Jesus himself. Mm-hmm. Right? And you're right. I think as modern preachers, we sometimes shy away, not always for bad reason, uh, adopting the persona of Christ in a story. <laughs> sure. I mean, we have good reasons to avoid that, but they're not all good reasons. Some of them are strategies of avoidance. Because when I heard you say that, I immediately was like, I'm super uncomfortable with that. Not just because, oh, you know, Jesus, what? but even just specifically, I like the kind of objective distance of adopting the perspective of the author. And I feel safer there. So even if I'm going to present a more challenging message, I can be like, it's not me, it's the text, it's Jesus talking. I'm just, I'm just your friend here. I don't like it, but Jesus is, you know. <laughs> and, and I think there's a place for that, actually. There's a time for preachers to undermine their own authority in order mm-hmm. to highlight Christ's authority. But there is a time for preachers to seize their authority 
and to mm-hmm. not adopt that kind of indirection and distancing maneuver. Correct. So for me, in this conversation with you, I'm feeling challenged that in my preaching, do I seize the authority of the moment? And again, mm-hmm. that, that's definitely, I like that you're even spacing that because in a lot of ways, a lot of our listeners are going to have a natural inclination one way or the other. Because I'm guessing there's some of our listeners who kind of really like playing Jesus, <laughs> you know, <laughs> ah, you know, like pick a fight, you know, who, who get a kick out of being the tough guy preacher, right? Yeah. And so maybe for them it is, and if they've been listening to this podcast for a while, they're probably already moved, being being sucked into the more kind of objective distance of the, the John Drury approach. But anyway, uh, <laughs> but there are a lot of us who need to learn how to, to move out of that kind of uh, identification with the author, mm-hmm. uh, third point of view, view from nowhere almost approach that I think even falsifies really the author's intention. So anyway, that was just me commenting on your distinction. I was going to say though that there's this specific way this plays out in the gospels because you literally have, do you read this as a kind of, as an event in Jesus life or mm-hmm. read it as a text in Luke's book, you know? Yes. Yeah. You know, like you don't have that same dynamic in like Paul's letters, right? The author just is the voice, you know? Yes. Whereas yeah. here the voice, the dominant voice in the gospels is not the author. It's Jesus. And I sometimes really can get stuck in that kind of authorial intent mode. Yes. Lose, <laughs> and, but that's a kind of safety maneuver. Again, you have a similar dynamic in acts with those sermons, you know, are you kind of, are you, are you going to play Luke? Or are you going to play Peter, you know, in your right. sermon? Are yes. you going to, you know, I mean, we just, our, uh, our Pentecost episode would have dropped a while ago, but, but there we had to kind of discuss, like, do you, do you tell the story of Pentecost and then a be Peter interpret Pentecost for people? Mm-hmm. Or do you interpret Peter's sermon, right? But then you're interpreting an interpretation of an interpretation, right? So That's it's kind of, right. uh, it's tricky, right? Uh, how to make those choices. And I think for our listeners, there's going to be certain personal proclivities as well as gifting. Sure. There's going to be the challenge. Hey, if you're always going all objective and playing Luke, maybe it's time to speak like Jesus or vice versa. If you're always kind of aping Jesus, picking a fight, maybe it's time to back off and, you know, uh, yes. And then there's the local congregational exegesis to just be like, what does my, what does my church need to hear right now? Right. You know, they Absolutely. feeling really beaten down and actually it's not going to help for me to give them another kick yes. or have they grown complacent and they could use a kick, you know? <laughs> And that's a discernment question that obviously you can't decide for people. Um, no, absolutely. I'm, I'm glad that, that you bring clar- clarity to that point uh, because in no way I think uh, uh, trying to portray uh, yeah, I would try to avoid some sort of sermon that is coming heavy-handed on the congregation. Uh, and again, I would be very careful because – this is Jesus speaking to the crowds and the disciples, uh, not on Sunday morning in a church in right. this setting. Uh, it, it really is the pressing reality in which they live. But uh, but also I would, you know, I I would take the larger framework of Luke, and and mm. Luke has this unique way in 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 which we already know he's going to Jerusalem, but Luke is going to take time to show us on the way to Jerusalem uh, what, it, what it means to be a disciple, the cost of discipleship. Yeah, and, yeah. and without saying it, and you, you may correct me on this one, but I think in a sense by Jesus talking about his baptism and challenging his disciples, he is really inviting them to, to live a journey of entering into the baptism of Jesus mm-hmm. to, to live a life that that denies itself to anything else and embraces this pathway of the baptism of Jesus and i think uh, in that sense my sermon perhaps would shape up around this idea in, in, in which taking very seriously today in the 21st century here in the united states and, and i would dare to say globally to take very seriously allegiance to Jesus uh, with the understanding of his baptism and, and his suffering would lead to some turmoil, whether that is uh, uh, 
at the local church levels, at the denominational levels, at the political le levels. I think we're getting to the point in which uh, this, this type of allegiance to Jesus uh, is a bit chaotic and is challenging, but I think he is making the challenge of, of saying, will, will I find faithful servants doing the work that I've assigned? So I would also connect, connect this text with the larger framework of discipleship and say, uh, this is not just a, a hard word to hear because we don't like the terminology. Clearly, Jesus is saying, hey, uh, this is the time of the spirit and of fire. And he's doing both. He's, he's leading us on the pathway to discipleship, but he's also uh, purifying and, and making things right. No, I think that's really good. I think, you know, there's kind of a, this makes me think of, well, I'll say, I'll say two things. First would be the, just a little pitch for one of the benefits of lectionary preaching. Not only A, it gets you to preach text you might not normally select, <laughs> like a text like this. That's right. You can get stuck to it and you can do it too long. And, but I mean, to try it out uh, for a season. And then specifically like with Luke, because it goes through Luke in order, Basically, right after Pentecost, within the third week after Pentecost, this summer, as our listeners would know, Jesus has been on his way to Jerusalem, and all these texts were just going in order. You know, mm -hmm. not every text, but jumping around, but not going straight in order. From 951, Jesus set his face on Jerusalem, mm -hmm. right? Right. And, and then there's this pattern that all of these texts have this kind of ratchet. They're, they're, he turns up the heat mm -hmm. on discipleship, mm -hmm. right? Because right after he says that is the, the cost of discipleship passage where he says, you know, you got to count the cost, right? right? Whereas prior to that, you get much more of a vibe of like Jesus, you get the more welcoming image of Jesus, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, whoever wants to come, I'll help you. I'll heal your, you know. And yeah, he's still healing and, and compassionate. That hasn't stopped, right? But his, his, fo his focus is more on the formation of his disciples as they go mm -hmm. and starting to make, starting to introduce a distinction between disciple and crowd. Whereas that was vaguer back in Galilee. That's excellent. Right? Because you could be a part of the crowd and still go home to your job and your family. Yep. But now, if you want to be in the crowds, basically, unless you're going to be part of the traveling crowd, which basically makes you a disciple, you have to leave your job if you want to stay. <laughs> right? So he's really, the travel motif's crucial. And I think, again, if you're kind of going through this passage, even if you're not a lectionary preacher, if you just did a summer going through the journey to Jerusalem. And it's a way, like, I mean, one way of framing it, actually, he still calls them disciples. But you really pick up the language of follower, right? Mm -hmm. And follower, disciple implies sitting at the feet. You can be a disciple in Galilee. But in order to stay a disciple, once Jesus gets up and starts heading for Jerusalem, now you have to be a follower. You have to get up off your feet and start walking. That's right. And, and that brings with it consequences and conflict and chaos. Um, hey, look, I got some alliteration there. But, uh, but <laughs> these consequences, conflict, and chaos that bring out the the consequence of the choices you made and that fits the language of baptism so this is actually the sermon i just thought of it's your sermon it's just me i, I, I <laughs> a, a motif to frame it as the second baptism or which is actually in my tradition where we talk about baptism of the holy spirit this mm -hmm. is this is at our better moments this is what we mean right hey, you've, been, you've been baptized with water you're a believer in jesus right. but now are you going to take discipleship to the next level mm -hmm. right that's right um, and yeah, there are some traditions where that's about your interior life and your virtue. That's kind of more, you know, and your purity that's big time in the kind of holiness tradition in more Pentecostal traditions. It's, um, the tongues and the evidence that comes with that, but that's a not, that's oriented towards proclamation right now. I'm going to yeah. be apostolic. I've been granted authority and both of those are valid, but I think this Luke and passion is kind of pushing us to a different way of talking about second baptism. So, I think the question is, uh, like, I, here's the way I, I wouldn't call it second baptism because I think that'd be distracting, but um, because people would either know what that means and be confused that I'm going to talk about their thing, or they've never heard it before and they'll just be confused. Well, what are you talking about? But maybe like next baptism, like a question, <laughs> what's your next baptism or um, uh, fire baptism? Because it helps that fire's here, but spirit's not, right? Just, just yes. talk about fire, right? <laughs> This week is the theme is fire baptism. What does it mean to be baptized by fire? And in fact, you can actually talk about how that was used in the early church. That's, that's what they would say of martyrs who had been martyred for their faith, but hadn't been baptized yet. 
They'd say, oh, they have baptism by fire. In other words, if you die for your faith, that God counts that as baptism, <laughs> which is a great, just so you could tell that story. Excellent. Talk right. about John the Baptist. Talk about, and then ask, and then ask the loyalty questions. What, who, who, whose, whose perspective, whose values, what institutional and personal values compete with your loyalty to Jesus Christ? Mm-hmm. When right. Christ calls you and when you accept water baptism, right, by faith, through grace, right, um, it was implied that all these loyalties are gone. But mm-hmm. we all know they're still there, right? So <laughs> right. now's the second moment, this deeper calling. It's it's really an entire sanctification sermon. I just wouldn't, <laughs> like, you know, because it might distract. Uh, yes. It would be just saying next level discipleship or mature discipleship. I found the perfect term. Uh, uh, Ronald Rollheiser has these books, a three book series. The third book hasn't come out yet, but the first one is called Holy Longing and it's on essential discipleship. And then the third, the second part is mature discipleship. He calls it sacred fire, Mm -hmm. fire. Interesting. And then the final one is the radical discipleship. That's about death. And it loosely corresponds in Luke to kind of the first part, the middle and then the end. So I think something about mature discipleship or, real discipleship or uh, deeper calling, these kinds of imagery I would use. Again, listeners, whichever one is going to work in your context, grab it. Uh, that's excellent. But, uh, that's excellent. Again, it's, it's the sermon you said. It's just me saying that's kind of how I would frame it. That, yeah, no, no. That's that the is title a, or the theme or motif. It is a better framework. And the last thing I would lo- love to point out is I think we find here a, a homiletical uh, uh, wisdom in that sometimes when you address uh, ah. themes like this, you, you do need to have two audiences in mind. And, oh. and we see that movement yeah. in, in Jesus, right? Some things are said for the disciples uh, and everybody can hear it, but, but they have to hear it differently. And some things need to be said for the crowds and they will hear it and be challenged but they are perhaps, like you said, uh, the, crowd, the crowds and the disciples in different stages of discipleship. And while it's all in Luke, all compiled in the same uh, uh, sermon, uh, Jesus seems to be discerning the different nuances of who yeah. does he need to address and how does he need to address them. So I think that's, that's wise also for preaching today oh, and bringing this sermon to life. Well, that applies every week, man. Mm-hmm. You know? And sometimes you got to just know this sermon's a little bit more for the disciples than the crowd. Mm-hmm. And we got to be clever enough to have it have value for all those listening in and vice versa. Sometimes a sermon's for the crowd mm-hmm. more than the disciples, Yeah, but you don't get to decide who's in the room. And, <laughs> and I don't know for sure who's who, right? But it, as even a, that's even a, just to throw in a, this is a little wrench in the end, but we should probably wrap up. But uh, as we're pushing an hour, but uh, past an hour, I think uh, that it'd be, it'd be a good uh, self-assessment when you're looking back on a year of preaching to kind of ask how many of my sermons were kind of for the disciples and how many were for the crowd. That's you know? And if I'm doing all crowd preaching, am I really forming people in deeper discipleship? That's right. And vice versa. You know, if I'm, if I'm only ever talking to disciples and never bringing a message that uh, is either challenging or comforting to either brand new believers or those who are not believers at all, but just having to show up. That's a, I just think it's a nice yeah, little, that's uh, excellent. little personal uh, assessment to tool to do from time to time. So thanks for pointing that out. Yeah. I hadn't thought of thought of it that way to actually take some homiletical advice from Jesus, right. To not just preach about Jesus, but to preach like Jesus. Which I was terrible at. <laughs> right. I've seen you do it. Uh, <laughs> you know how to do it. <laughs> yeah. So you preach with authority, brother, and I like it. <laughs> <laughs> cool, man. Well, so, thank you so much for uh, spending time uh, today. For It was a blast for me, and it's a huge gift to our, uh, to our audience. So I really, really appreciate the time you gave. Absolutely. Thank you, John. Yeah. Um, you got anything to plug? This is going to drop, uh, in like July, August. I can't remember the exact date, but, uh, um, 
You got anything coming up that you want to tell people about? Any books coming out or articles or speaking engagements in the fall of 2019? It's okay if not. I just thought I'd ask. Yeah, I think... You want to self-promote a little? <laughs> the the in would be already in... Uh, in on route so I don't yeah, the think demon that... leadership will have already begun although someone could start in in a uh individualized program and take some courses in leadership or do preaching the following year yeah yeah, you're right by the time this drops it'll the deadline yeah. will pass right yeah. <laughs> oops yeah. yeah cool no i can't think of anything to be honest okay well uh-huh. you know <laughs> cool sign up for the mdiv and when luigi uh, publishes his dissertation buy it Um, yep awesome awesome well sorry to put put you on the spot i just always like to give an opportunity if people want to self-promote i hate doing that so i would hate it if you asked me to do that (laughs) yeah i'm good awesome well big thank you to uh eric fisher our producer thank you to uh luigi for uh being a guest this week thanks to uh tom adamson for donating the theme music uh, at the top and bottom and throughout. We appreciate that so much. And um, biggest thank yous to you, our listeners. Uh, thank you so much for listening in. Make sure to rate and review us and subscribe to us on iTunes or what are they called? Stitch or all those places where all our, we're on all the major apps. So wherever you like to get it, make sure you're subscribing and, and uh, rating and review just to get the word out, pass it around on social media. We appreciate that a ton if you're willing to do that. Thanks so much for listening in and we hope you have a good week and a good preach. Wait, I said it backwards. It's a good preach and a great week. (laughs) All right. Bye-bye.